Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 286. Rich Kimball here with you, brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, your greater main window and door replacement experts. During December, get 25% off your entire project, minimum purchase of four units. See your design consultant for details online at rbagreatermain.com. Two great conversations on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, the wonderful actress Joanna Cassidy returns to the program. Up first, a comedian, historian, and author. Well, author and historian from the world of comedy. He's written three terrific books, The Comedians. We had a little real estate problem, and his newest, entitled Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. Fascinating conversation with Cliff Nesteroff here on Downtown. Well, the book is is so good, and uh, certainly this is a response to those people who continue to say things like, you can't say anything anymore without people being offended. Yes, I mean, it's true that people do get upset about things. There's no question about that. But the notion that it's a new thing or a new phenomenon is something that I'm pushing back against and contradicting in this new book by uh, presenting a litany of evidence demonstrating that people have always complained, sometimes rationally, more often irrationally, and that if you look at uh, the tradition of AM and FM radio and what you could not say for forever on those mediums compared to what you can say on satellite radio and podcasts, or what you could not and cannot say on network television, ABC, CBS, NBC, throughout all of its history, compared to cable television and streaming, I would argue that there's more freedom of expression today, not less. Yeah, and the people who say that, I think, are well the same people who don't understand how the First Amendment works. Nobody's going to jail like, like Mae West or Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor did, but as I think you point out, these people don't like their free speech being countered by the free speech of others. Yes. Uh, when somebody espouses something that people object to, let's say it's somebody saying something that uh, is racist or at least being accused of, of being racist, then people react and people often protest. But protest is a form of free expression. But the way it is framed in our society these days, especially through uh, uh, the channels of specific invested political players, is that it's free speech versus censorship. But a bigot espousing bigotry is free expression, and somebody protesting somebody for espousing bigotry is also free expression. So you have two forms of free expression crashing against each other, uh, free speech versus free speech. But it's often mischaracterized as free speech versus censorship, which I strongly disagree with that characterization. And these conversations have gone on as long as we've had popular entertainment and the the pre-vaudeville days. uh, Often it was people upset with ethnic depictions and ethnic stereotypes that were being portrayed on stage. Yeah, Yeah, uh, Amos and Andy is a very uh, famous example. It wasn't the stage, it was radio, but it was informed originally by the blackface minstrel shows, Charles Carell and Freeman Gosden, who created Amos and Andy and starred in it, two white guys doing what they considered to be black dialect, uh, had started on the stage individually of each other in minstrel shows. So when they started Amos and Andy, the dialect that they were doing was informed by the old blackface minstrelsy type shows. I can't pronounce minstrelry. Minstrelsy, I can never say that word. But 
when Amos Nandy first premiered, the theme song that was used was the same theme music from D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. So there were all these signifiers in Amos Nandy that it belonged to that old-fashioned sort of uh, Confederate apologetica. So it was very controversial, believe it or not, when it premiered, when it went national in 1929-1930. There was a massive uh, protest movement that was spearheaded by the Pittsburgh Courier, one of the famous uh, black newspapers of the era. They had a major protest campaign that they orchestrated. 750,000 signatures were collected from people who objected to what they considered uh, odious stereotypes on the program, and it was submitted to the FCC at the time, the FRC, the Federal Radio Commission. But nothing was done about it because at the time, African Americans did not have a great deal of purchasing power. So if they threatened the sponsor with a boycott, it didn't hit the same way as if the uh, where as if it were white listeners uh, uh, threatening a boycott. So the show remained, but it remained um, for years and years and years. And when it was uh, initially brought to television, there was objection right away. If you look at the TV show version of Amos and Andy, it doesn't come across as uh, as, as as racist really as you might think. But the the name Amos and Andy carried this stigma with it for years and years and years, and that is the reason the TV show. I was later protested. And even back in, in the vaudeville and in pre-vaudeville days, uh, was it a clan Nigel that was uh, very upset with the depictions of Irish characters? Yes, I talk about this organization in the book. Um, they were a Irish-American advocacy group that uh, rejected Irish stereotypes on the vaudeville stage, and their methods were very aggressive. I'm not sure if they were inspired by the Molly Maguires. They may have been. Um, but they... Uh, would go directly to theater owners and complain. We're talking about the 1890s and the early 1900s. They'd say, you know, you have these Irish dialect comedians on the stage. They're not even Irish. We consider them slanderous, and we'd like you to cancel them from the program. We don't want these Irish stereotypes on your stage. And theater owners like the famous uh, Hammerstein Theater said, well, people enjoy these acts, and nobody has ever complained before, so this is our theater. We're not going to buckle to your demands. And the Clan Gale said, well, you've been warned. And the next time they presented Irish stereotype comedians, they stormed the stage. They blew whistles so that the comedians were drowned out. They stomped their feet. Um, they threw things at the stage. And they started to threaten comedians. They would send death threats to comics. And this inspired other uh, uh, minority groups, what were considered minority groups at the time, Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants, to object to similar type stereotypes, and, and, and other organizations organized. And eventually, it led to changes in vaudeville. And there were editorials at the time uh, decreeing this sort of uh, aggressive method, saying these people need to relax, they don't have a sense of humor, they're trying to kill off comedy. And then there were editorials arguing the opposite, saying it's time for comedy to evolve, we should listen to these people. So the debate over 100 years ago was not dissimilar to some of the debates you hear today in our culture, in show business, and in comedy. We're talking with Cliff Nesteroff here on Downtown. I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, in the early days of jazz, it was criticized in the same way that rock and roll and later hip-hop and rap would be criticized as jungle music, savage music, uh, destroying the lives and the minds of our young people. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the examples are very surprising because everything seems so innocuous by today's standards crooning the new method of singing in the late 1920s, early 30s, made famous by Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley, it was considered immoral. It was considered a seductive form of singing. 
that was far too uh, sexual, even though the lyrics of these songs had no uh, sexual implications. People like Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley were condemned uh, from various preachers' pulpits throughout the late 1920s and early 1930s. Jazz music, the same thing. Also dance, like the jitterbug, the tango. Uh, all throughout history, these things were condemned as immoral. In the early 1960s, the twist was considered uh, uh, lascivious because of the way people would gyrate. But, you know, you look back at it today, all of it seems so innocuous, which um, makes me suggest to people that it's best to calm down when there's hysteria today because the hysteria of the past looks ridiculous to us now, the hysteria over Elvis, the hysteria over the Beatles. So when there is hysteria in our popular culture today, I think uh, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, it will look equally as ridiculous. Yeah, in the early days of television, people were upset with uh, with Milton Berle in drag and also with uh, pretty openly effeminate male characters. Yes, there were many complaints about that in the 1950s. Um, Jack Benny, a guy who you do not think of as being a controversial comedian, um, he was uh, told internally by NBC to cut out what they described as the limp-wristed characters. They had a joke in one episode in which Jack Benny is, is telling one of the people in his cast that he's hired a new bodyguard named Killer Hogan. This was on the radio program. And you're expecting, like, a burly, tough guy and... <laughs> When Killer Hogan delivers his first line of dialogue, it's like this very sing-song lisp, you know, indicating that he was an effeminate gay man. And it got a huge, huge laugh, but NBC said cut that out. Now, they weren't saying cut that out because it was a gay stereotype, which it was. Today, such a stereotype would be objected for a different reason. They were telling, them, telling him to cut it out simply because it implied homosexuality, and the mere mention of that was taboo in show business, at least in the mainstream of radio and television at the time. I thought one of the interesting through lines in the book, Cliff, is the fact that the people who were on the cutting edge early in their career, Mae West, Steve Allen, Mort Saul, and others, got very upset with the direction things were going later in life. Yes, this is very common, uh, where people who start out as the young firebrand become more conservative as they get older. Mae West, in the 1920s, was arrested because she wrote and starred in a play called Sex on Broadway. And it was actually a big hit. It ran for six months until the NYPD vice squad raided the show and arrested everybody involved. She spent 10 days in a prison workhouse. Um, and later, when she appeared on radio with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, she got in trouble and was accused of being salacious. She was banned from radio. There was a major... A protest campaign that was spearheaded by Protestant churches against Mae West. But by the 1970s, this woman who had been one of the first performers to sort of mainstream uh, uh, sex and, and sexual commentary in the culture felt that Hollywood had become too dirty. She objected to nudity in the movies. She did not like to hear swear words in her presence. And she condemned Hollywood. So uh, ironically, as she got older, she started to condemn things the same way that she herself had been condemned when she was young. This happened with Steve Allen, the first host of The Tonight Show in the 1950s. By the 1990s, he was criticizing shows like Dawson's Creek, Just Shoot Me, The Farrelly Brothers, uh, saying that Hollywood was now addicted to uh, dirty humor, and he did not want to um, be a part of it. So he went on a campaign condemning it. And in fact, Steve Allen's last book, which was published only after he died, was called Bulgarians at the Gate, in which he uh, 
we addressed those issues. And today, to read, at, read it again, his complaint seems so uh, uh, that they're addressing shows that seem so innocuous by today's standards. But yes, that's a common evolution. Late 50s, early 60s, uh, we saw the rise of the John Birch Society. I did not know the background that it was founded by, well, the junior Mince guy and the father of the Koch brothers. That's right. And 10 other businessmen as well. There was a weird guy who was another co-founder named Ravillo P. Oliver. His name was the same forwards and backwards. Ravillo P. (laughs) Oliver, Ravillo P. Oliver. He was also a Holocaust denier. And they formed the John Birch Society, Fred Koch, the father of the Koch brothers, um, and Charles Koch, who was the famous Koch brothers, the controversial Koch brother who's still alive. He got his start uh, politically running a John Birch Society bookstore in the late 1960s in Wichita. He did that for three years until his father passed away, and he inherited his wealth and took over the family oil business. Um, But yes, Robert Welch was the president of the John Birch Society, and he was the guy who was responsible. He was a uh, a well-known candy manufacturer, and his company was the same company that made Junior Mints. And the John Birch Society in the 1950s, the late 50s and early 60s, were among the most vocal opponents in the culture of the civil rights movement. They warned that the civil rights movement was a step towards Soviet tyranny in America. They accused Martin Luther King of being a Soviet agent, and they attacked all kinds of show business people, comedians including Bob Newhart, Dan Freeberg. And when George Carlin became a solo stand-up comic in 1964, he had previously been in a comedy team with a guy named Jack Burns, when George Carlin went solo, one of his first routines was a routine that made fun of the John Birch Society. But before the phrase culture war existed, the John Birch Society in the late 50s and the early 60s were sort of the purveyors of the culture war. They incited their followers to condemn hippies, to condemn rock music, and they went after uh, some of the people that, again, today, by today's standards, seem utterly innocuous. But when they became kind of a laughingstock, they shifted their focus into what we now know as think tanks, uh, these groups uh, that have very similar names. There are dozens, hundreds of them out there, the Heritage Foundation and others. And as you put it, it, it gave an air of respectability to these people with the use of senior fellows as experts, what, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. Well, there was this, this guy who was a lecturer on the John Birch Society lecture circuit, what they called the American Opinion Speakers Bureau. And his name was Paul Wyrick, and he was from Wisconsin. And at the time, Republicans rejected him. They considered him an extremist, and they didn't like having him around. But Paul Wyrick was sort of a evil genius. He was sort of like a real-life Lex Luthor, and he saw that the John Birch Society was being ridiculed by George Carlin, by Bob Dylan, by Mad Magazine, ridiculed in the jokes of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. So he retreated. In 1973, he founded something called the Heritage Foundation with an influx of cash from uh, far-right billionaires and sort of rebranded. He still kept the same John Birch Society philosophy, the idea that the civil rights movement was evil. Um, and one of the first things that the Heritage Foundation got involved in after they were founded um, was a anti-textbook campaign in Kanawha County, West Virginia. It was a very famous censorship campaign in which locals were trying to purge the teaching of black history from their local uh, school books. And they objected to the inclusion of the lyrics of We Shall Overcome in one of the textbooks. They said it was communist propaganda. This is what the locals who uh, in that area were saying. 
the Heritage Foundation provided legal counsel to defend the book censors and to defend the idea that black history should be removed from the textbooks. So that was the type of thing that the John Birch Society would have done in the early 60s. By the early 70s, that's what the Heritage Foundation was doing. But now they had this air of respectability, guys in bow ties, invoking phrases like the founding fathers, freedom and liberty, when in reality, they're really trying to curtail the freedom of many. Boy, and that one group in particular, you write about uh, Alec, talking about big corporations. Uh, all I kept thinking about was Ned Beatty's character in Network. <laughs> yeah, Alec, which stands for the American Legislative Executive Council, was also founded by Paul Weirich. Paul Weirich uh, passed away about 15 years ago, but Alec is still around and more powerful than ever. Um, the anti-abortion laws that have recently passed throughout America were written by ALEC. They ghostwrite legislation, and they present them to legislators who are funded by uh, various factions, including uh, Charles Koch. And then they just sort of green stamp these uh, – uh, uh, not green stamp, rubber stamp uh, this legislation that is ghostwritten by ALEC. Also, a lot of the anti-protest legislation that has passed in recent history – in which the protest of any infrastructure project, uh, specifically oil pipelines, is now categorized as a terrorist act. Uh, those laws also drafted by the American Legislative Executive Council, ALEC. So Paul Weirich, former John Birch Society lecturer, founded the Heritage Foundation, founded ALEC. He also founded the Moral Majority with Jerry Falwell. So these are the people, or at least the organizations, that you often hear invoking the phrase freedom, liberty, and freedom of speech. But if you look behind the curtain, uh, they are frequently the forces that are most opposed to that. And then uh, found a whole new battleground uh, after the end of the Fairness Doctrine with the rise of talk radio. And, and as you point out, many of these foundations and think tanks uh, directly bankrolled people like Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, and even, even gave them talking points to focus on. Yes. In exchange for uh, cash payments, their talking points would be integrated to their commentary seamlessly. So it was like a paid announcement, but it was never disclosed to the listening audience. Um, there's a uh, radio network still exists. In fact, they just did book promo uh, on their network, Premier Networks. They're a famous radio syndicator. And they had a, uh, a an offshoot in the early 90s called Premier On Call. And what they would do was they would provide uh, actors posing as phone callers for your talk radio show, and they would deliver a predetermined script that would agree with what the host was saying. So in exchange for cash payments, they would present people to phone in who are not real listeners. And this is not a conspiracy. They had an actual uh, folder, a pamphlet, explaining what it is that they, what they would do, and you know you could hire their service. And in the pamphlet they said, you know, uh, we will never repeat the same actor to phone into your show uh, more often <laughs> four months uh, every four months in order to ensure the uh, uh, the reality or the perception of reality for your listening audience. So the Rush Limbaugh show subscribed to that service, Premier On Call, and people would phone in who were not actual listeners but actors. There are so many amazing stories uh, in the book, Cliff. But uh, could you briefly uh, tell the story of what happened? Uh, I guess it was in the '70s, maybe early '80s, when uh, some groups out there got concerned with Richard Dawson kissing all of those contestants on Family Feud. <laughs> yes, this doesn't really have anything to do with the culture war. But when I was researching my book, I was investigating various letters to the editor because part of the conceit today 
the idea that you can't joke about anything anymore or that in the old days people didn't complain, but now people complain about everything, is that on social media you'll see thousands of people complaining about something they saw on TV or something that a comedian said. In the old days, if somebody objected to something, they wrote a letter to the editor, a local newspaper or a magazine or TV guide, but the operative word here is editor. So if 100 people complained and wrote a letter, they wouldn't publish 100 letters. They'd just publish maybe one, maybe two. Today, there's no editor. 100 people complain on social media. All 100 complaints are published instantaneously. So in the 1970s, when Richard Dawson was hosting Family Feud, he was known for kissing the female contestants on the mouth as a greeting. And sometimes if you watch old episodes of Family Feud, a full seven minutes off the top of the show is taken up with him just going down the line and glad handling the contestants and kissing them on the mouth. I discovered in my research that there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of letters to the editor complaining about this practice, saying this is disgusting. Why is Richard Dawson kissing these female contestants on, on the mouth? Doesn't he realize this is how disease is spread? And these letters continued all throughout the late 70s and early 80s until finally, I believe, the last season of Richard Dawson's Family Feud, according to one newspaper report, they instated a new policy that in order to appear as a contestant on Family Feud, you first had to be tested for herpes. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought this was quite a hilarious story. Put it in the book. And it uh, got some attention last week. People Magazine picked up this story, and then it got picked up by all the tabloids from the New York Post to Entertainment Weekly. But they kind of took the fun out of it. It was all uh, reported as if it's a very serious situation. And they actually saw a TV show like a morning show, some guy complaining, saying, why are we drudging up this stuff from the past? Can't we let Richard Dawson rest in peace? And it completely uh, took all the humor out of the story. But I included the, the story in the book because the idea that a family feud contestant had to be tested for herpes before kissing Richard Dawson strikes me as hilarious. Well, there's so much that's funny and a whole lot that's scary in the book as well. But, uh, yeah, when you hear the arguments today, when you hear people talk about things like cultural Marxism, just think back a little bit and realize that uh, this has been going on for a while. And, and often it's the same talking points that we've heard for years. Uh, Cliff, before I let you go, though, I want to mention um, you do so many terrific things. And uh, you were a big contributor doing a lot of research uh, for the wonderful new documentary about Albert Brooks, one of my heroes, uh, called Defending My Life. Yes, yes, yes. I, I was honored to work on that. It's a new documentary. It's available to stream on HBO Max. It was directed by Rob Briner. Give you some insider information. It was really ghost-directed by Albert Brooks. Nothing appeared in the documentary without Albert's approval. But uh, I was very flattered because Albert uh, requested me by name, and they hired me on the project, and I was in charge of all the sort of archival research. So I was the one who had to track down high school yearbooks that had Rob Reiner and Albert Brooks together at Beverly Hills High School. You'll see images from that in the film. And then I got to go into all the vaults and find all the rare stand-up comedy footage from Albert's very early career not all of it made the cut. There was a episode of the Helen Reddy Show, a special <laughs> starring the woman who sang uh, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar, in which Albert Brooks, Helen Reddy, and Gloria Steinem sit on stools and take questions from the audience about the state of America. You can even imagine it. It didn't make the final cut, but really interesting stuff I found in the, in the archives. And an episode of the Johnny Cash Show, which didn't make the cut, in which uh, Albert plays a terrible... Uh, psychic. He's sort of doing a parody 
of Kresgen, and he goes out into the audience, Albert Brooks, and he goes, uh, now, sir, uh, he's holding his forehead, he goes, now, sir, just to let everybody know, you and I have never met before, right? We have never met before. We've never met before. He goes to the next person, ma'am, have we ever met before? I've never seen you before in my life. And that's the entire stick. He just, <laughs> he just does that for three minutes. Um, so it was a delight to find all this rare Albert Brooks footage and to, we had meetings every week over Zoom. It was me, Albert Brooks, and Rob Reiner, and the editor, just the four of us. And uh, it was like having my own private Albert Brooks show. Yeah. Uh, every week for months on end. So I was very, very honored uh, to be a participant in that project. Well, it's a wonderful documentary. And the book uh, is called Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. Uh, more great work. Uh, Cliff, I'm such a big fan of everything you do. It's been a real treat to have a chance to talk with you this afternoon. Uh, thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you, Rich. Cliff Nesteroff talking about his brand new book, Outrageous, here on Downtown. We'll take a break, and when we come back, actress Joanna Cassidy on Downtown. The better way to a better window, renewal by Anderson. Picture this, a cozy main winter night, snowflakes gently falling, and inside, your home is comfortable and warm thanks to renewal by Anderson. What's their secret? Here's Troy Pearl to tell us. At Renewal by Anderson, we are the window and door replacement experts who can make your home merry and bright with every holiday season to come. And here's the magic. Our high-performance glass. It keeps your home cozy, even on the coldest winter days. Then there's our exclusive FiberX material. It's strong, durable, and energy efficient. But the magic doesn't end there. That's true, because for the month of December, we'll knock 25% off your entire project. 25%. Renewal by Anderson. Making Maine winters magical, one window and door at a time. To schedule a free in-home consultation, go to rbagreatermaine.com. For better to a better window renewal by anderson downtown our next guest the talented actress in films like blade runner under fire don't tell mom the babysitter's dead television shows like six feet under always a treat when we get a chance to visit with joanna cassidy which we did recently here on downtown it's been over four years since uh, you were last on our show, and I, boy, you were pretty busy then. It, it hasn't let up much. I mean, you're uh, you are working all the time these days. Uh, well, not. <laughs> it's been a little while to get that, that strike thing going on. So, but I, I am going back to work. So it's it's good. I'm working. Uh, can you talk much about this uh, movie that you you wrapped up that looks very interesting called Yesteryear? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I, can, I can talk about one that I shot during the uh, strike, which I had helped the uh, German producers get on board, you know, with one of those interim agreement things, uh, because he wasn't a member of the Writers Guild. So I helped them get that film happening. 
and I shot that in New York. Uh, it's called Uppercut. Um, and uh, I uh, did that. It's put together. It's good. Um, and I played, um, I was sort of like the, I guess like the emotional coach in the ring with the boxer. <laughs> you know, I wasn't a cutter. Um, uh, so, but it was just fine. I saw it and it looks great. Well, excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. You've also, uh, since we last spoke, uh, you did uh, a number of appearances on NCIS New Orleans. Uh, to give you a chance to visit the old stomping grounds. You used to own a house in New Orleans, right? Uh, I did. And actually, it wasn't New Orleans. It was a little town called Natchitoches, which is north of New Orleans. And, uh, yeah, I had that house for 12 years. That was an experience. That was something. Um, nope, let it go a few years ago. And I, I miss it because Louisiana is another world. Happy to say I got to live in it for a while and survived. Yeah, the last time we talked, I went back to listen to the conversation. And at the time, my producer was looking for a place in New Orleans. Well, in, in the time since, he bought a house, uh, sort of used it as a vacation getaway for a few years. And then uh, back in the fall, he and his wife packed up and, and moved there for keeps. Oh, really? Oh, well, it's interesting for sure. If you can take the heat and humidity, it's just fine. Yeah, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. Now, I notice they're they're coming back for Christmas, and they plan to spend some time here next summer when it's when it's super hot there. But, uh, no, they love it uh, so far. Well, I'm looking at some of the other work you've done. Uh, you had a number of appearances on The L Word, which is a terrific ensemble. I never saw it. Oh, really? I never saw it. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't much watch my things. I do them and sort of know what I do unless it, I, I, I people told me I was very good in it but I think that's the last time I'm going to play a woman with dementia I had I had uh, dementia and MS on that show so I was a little it was a little complicated no I'm sure but I did it because <laughs> I like to work and you know it was a good group of ladies so got her done you were, I think I just saw on social media, you were on the road. You were always in demand at Comic-Cons. And, and all these years later, boy, the, the Blade Runner fans never go away, do they? Don't seem to. Don't seem to. It's amazing. It's a life unto itself. It's really something. I, looking back through your work, and, and you've done so many remarkable performances through the years. One of my favorite shows that ended way too soon. Uh, you and, and Dabney Coleman were so great together, everybody, on Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I won a Golden Globe for that, and I was nominated for an Emmy. So, so, I mean, that's nice. That's nice to be acknowledged like that. Very nice. I have a friend recently who had surgery, and they, they posted in, in social media and said, hey, anybody got a great recommendation for a a series I can binge that I might not have seen before, and I always recommend in situations like that, Six Feet Under. And then I, I went back and rewatched, and I'm just as impressed as I was first time around. You were so good as as Margaret. Everybody in that cast was strong. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's playing right now, which is kind of nice. I'm getting some more recognition from that. No, I, no my career's been 
it's been good. It's been, it just seems to move along. Sort of amazing. Now you, am I right that you were an art major in college? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, I was. Uh, that's all I was interested in. That was science and oh, I just thought I was going to be a scientist, but it didn't work out. That's okay. <laughs> uh, the acting thing never crossed my mind. Um, and uh, I had got into it. Single mother, two kids. I had to do something. I was uh, pretty, and there weren't so many people then. Uh, now it's a it's a, it's a very tough game these days. Yeah, but, there's there's more out there, more opportunities to work than ever before, and yet, uh, yeah, you can never be sure how long anything will last these days, particularly on the streaming services where. Things can get a great critical reaction, fan reaction, and then they disappear. Well, it's it's exactly that's what's happening. Uh, plus, uh, it's it's everything is a swipe these days. You know, it's a, that seems to be what it is. People just swipe shows, and you know, it's not fabulous. It's done. Well, and like you say, sometimes they are fabulous, and then they're done. So it, it's, um, I sure wouldn't recommend anybody going to the business these days. Mm. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's too hard. I, I was very lucky. I came in at a good time and uh, managed to spin it into a career. I saw a very nice post you had recently talking about uh, the late Matthew Perry. You had worked with him on The Odd Couple on that series, but you had also worked with his dad, of course. And worked with him when he was a little boy. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a that was a time I loved his dad. He was he was he was great. I think he's still around. I haven't heard from John Bennett in a long time. I guess he's still out there. We used to we did a couple. Um, he's a guitar player, and I, I'm a singer, so we did some bits together. Uh, some different locations. It was fun, and I loved working with Mark. Uh, we had a very good time. It was um, uh, the nice thing about my business is I always learn something whenever I'm working. I, I learned all kinds of physical skills, which I adore. I'm sort of like a frustrated stunt woman, I guess. But I learned how to in a car and uh, scuba dive. I flew that helicopter. And we had dual controls in that thing. Chuck Timberl was the uh, pilot. And we flew around. He said, take it, Joanna. So I did. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, Stephen King owns our station. Of course, uh, you were in the Tommyknockers. That's right. That was fun. I, I, I love to tell people that I was killed by a bunch of dolls. <laughs> what a way to go. Yeah, right. Right, it always seems to make people laugh. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been very fortunate. I don't know why I uh, I don't like getting this business of getting old stuff. It's, you know, film business is really for the youth. Uh, I throw a, throw a few old people in there now and again, and um, I guess I'm one of them. 
uh, you just have to be very um, have a good conversation with your cinematographer. <laughs> well, I don't know. From from what I've seen, you seem to be defying time quite well. Thank you. Well, I'm not doing bad. I will say that I am not doing badly. Um, Is part of that? I wonder <laughs> keeping a youthful attitude too, and and hanging around with young people. Absolutely, uh, all in the attitude. I would say I've, I mean, you think you're old, honey? You're going to be old. Hmm. And I don't think I'm old at all. In fact, I think I'm so young it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing at times. I did I, I did this this uh, dance routine on social media. Um, so a couple of friends of mine, one who's a wonderful, uh, you know, he's got a show with a bunch of young kids, and they do they dance all over Europe. And he came over, and we uh, uh, just bit is the same bit the same fat boy slim who does this oh i saw that that was, that was wonderful yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i sent it back to uh my well, i just went back to a reunion recently i won't tell you which one it was a, it was uh, really something and i sent it to all the <laughs> people that came to the reunion and they liked it they didn't know what to do with it they didn't know what to say <laughs> And I just said, okay, that's it. That's over. They don't under, They don't get it. And, you know, these are, were my friends for years. I said, okay, they can get old. I'm not going to. So. Well, you got to be you and keep doing what you're doing because it's it's obviously worked for you and you're still in demand out there. And, and that's a great thing because anytime you show up on screen, I, I know it's going to be a great performance and uh, incredibly watchable as you have been uh, since you started the career. And uh, it, it's wonderful to talk with you again. We appreciate you making some time for us. Absolutely. My pleasure. I right. enjoyed it. Be well. Thank and you have a... Oh, I'm just going to say, be well, have a wonderful holiday, and hopefully we can do it again down the road. You bet. All right. You have a wonderful holiday, too, and take care. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye now. All right. Ciao. Bye-bye. Joanna Cassidy with us here on Downtown Hour. Thanks to Joanna. Thanks to Cliff Nesteroff. And, of course, uh, to you for joining us this week on Downtown, brought to you by Renewal by Anderson. Find them online at rbagreatermaine.com. Downtown Produced by Carrie Haskell and Downtown Productions. We'll see you next time right here.